0: Book 3, Chapter 1, Parts 3 through 5 of The Food of the Gods and How it Came to Earth by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Catherine Eastman. Three. The tallest and strongest and most regarded of all the children of the food were the three sons of Cossar. The mile or so of land near Sevenoaks in which their boyhood passed... Became so trenched, so dug out and twisted about, so covered with sheds and huge working models and all the play of their developing powers, it was like no other place on earth. And long since, it had become too little for the things they sought to do. The eldest son was a mighty schemer of wheeled engines. He had made himself a sort of giant bicycle that no road in the world had room for, no bridge could bear. There it stood, a great thing of wheels and engines, capable of two hundred and fifty miles an hour, useless, save that now and then he would mount it and fling himself backwards and forwards across that cumbered workyard. He had meant to go around the little world with it. He had made it with that intention, while he was still no more than a dreaming boy. Now its spokes were rusted deep red like wounds, wherever the enamel had been chipped away, "'You must make a road for it first, Sonny,' Cossar had said, "'before you can do that.'" So, one morning about dawn, the young giant and his brothers had set to work to make a road about the world. They seemed to have had an inkling of opposition impending, and they had worked with remarkable vigour. The world had discovered them soon enough, driving that road as straight as a flight of a bullet towards the English Channel, already some miles of it levelled and made and stamped hard. They had been stopped before midday by a vast crowd of excited people, owners of land, land agents, local authorities, lawyers, policemen, soldiers even. We're making a road, the biggest boy had explained. Make a road by all means, said the leading lawyer on the ground, but please respect the rights of other people. You have already infringed the private rights of 27 private proprietors, let alone the special privileges and property of an urban district board, nine parish councils, a county council, two gasworks, and a railway company. "'Goodney,' said the elder boy cossar. "'You will have to stop it.' "'But don't you want a nice straight road in the place of all these rotten, ruddy little lanes?' "'I won't say it wouldn't be advantageous, but—' "'It isn't to be done.' said the eldest cossar boy, picking up his tools. Not in this way, said the lawyer certainly. How is it to be done? The leading lawyer's answer had been complicated and vague. Cossar had come down to see the mischief his children had done, and reproved them severely and laughed enormously, and seems to be extremely happy over the affair. You boys must wait a bit, he shouted up to them, before you can do things like that. The lawyer told us we must begin by preparing a scheme and getting special powers and all sorts of rot. Said it would take us years. We'll have a scheme before long, little boy," cried Cosser, hands to his mouth as he shouted. Never fear. For a bit you'd better play about and make models of the things you want to do. They did as he told them, like obedient sons. But for all that the Cossar lads brooded a little. It's all very well. "'said the second to the first. "'But I don't always want to just play about and plan. "'I want to do something real, you know. "'We didn't come into this world so strong as we are "'just to play about in this messy little bit of ground, you know, "'and take little walks and keep out of the towns, "'for by that time they were forbidden all boroughs and urban districts. "'Doing nothing's just wicked. "'Can't we find out something the little people want done "'and do it for them, just for the fun of doing it?' "'Lots of them haven't houses fit to live in,' said the second boy. "'Let's go and build them a house close up to London "'that will hold heaps and heaps of them "'and be ever so comfortable and nice, "'and let's make them a nice little road "'to where they all go and do business, "'a nice straight little road, "'and make it all as nice as nice. "'We'll make it all so clean and pretty "'that they won't any of them be able to live "'grubby and beastly like most of them do now. "'Water enough for them to wash with we'll have, "'You know they're so dirty now that nine out of ten of their houses "'haven't even baths in them, the filthy little skunks. "'You know, the ones that have baths spit insults at the ones that haven't "'instead of helping them to get them, and call them the great unwashed, you know. "'We'll alter all that, and we'll make electricity light, "'and cook and clean up for them and all. "'Fancy, they make their women, women who are going to be mothers, "'crawl about and scrub floors.' We could make it all beautifully. We could bank up a valley in that range of hills over there and make a nice reservoir. And we could make a big place here to generate our electricity and have it all simply lovely. Couldn't we, brother? And then perhaps they'd let us do some other things. Yes, said the elder brother. We could do it very nice for them. Then let's, said the second brother. I don't mind, said the elder brother, and looked about for a handy tool. And that led to another dreadful bother. Agitated multitudes were at them in no time, telling them for a thousand reasons to stop, telling them to stop for no reason at all, babbling confused and varied multitudes. The place they were building was too high. It couldn't possibly be safe. It was ugly. It interfered with the letting of proper-sized houses in the neighborhood. It ruined the tone of the neighborhood. It was unneighborly. It was contrary to the local building regulations. It infringed the right of the local authority to muddle about with a minute, expensive electric supply of its own. It interfered with the concerns of the local water company. Local government board clerks roused themselves to judicial obstruction. The little lawyer turned up again to represent about a dozen threatened interests. Local landowners appeared in opposition. People with mysterious claims claimed to be bought off at exorbitant rates. The trade unions of all the building trades lifted up collective voices, and a ring of dealers in all sorts of building material became a bar. Extraordinary associations of people with prophetic visions of aesthetic horrors rallied to protect the scenery of the place where they would build the great house, of the valley where they would bank up the water. These last people were absolutely the worst asses of the lot, "'the cossar boys considered. "'That beautiful house of the cossar boys "'was just like a walking stick "'thrust into a wasp's nest in no time.' "'I never did,' said the elder boy. "'We can't go on,' said the second brother. "'Rotten little beasts they are,' said the third of the brothers. "'We can't do anything.' "'Even when it's for their own comfort, "'such a nice place we'd have made for them too.' They seem to spend their silly little lives getting in each other's way, said the eldest boy. Rights and laws and regulations and rascalities is like a game of spelicans. Well, anyhow, they'll have to live in their grubby, dirty, silly little houses for a bit longer. It's very evident we can't go on with this. And the Cossar children left that great house unfinished, a mere hole of foundations and the beginning of a wall, and sulked back to their big enclosure. After a time the hole was filled with water, and with stagnation, and weeds, and vermin. And the food, either dropped there by the sons of Cossar or blowing thither as dust, set growth going in its usual fashion. Water voles came out over the country, and did infinite havoc, and one day a farmer caught his pigs drinking there, and instantly, and with great presence of mind, for he knew of the great hog of Oakham, slew them all, and from that deep pool it was, the mosquitoes came, quite terrible mosquitoes, whose only virtue was that the sons of Cossar, after being bitten for a little, could stand the thing no longer, but chose a moonlight night when law and order were abed, and drained the water clean away into the river by brook. But they left the big weeds and the big water voles and all sorts of big undesirable things still living and breeding on the site they had chosen. THE SITE ON WHICH THE FAIR, GREAT HOUSE OF THE LITTLE PEOPLE MIGHT HAVE TOWERED TO HEAVEN. FOUR. THAT HAD BEEN IN THE BOYHOOD OF THE SONS, BUT NOW THEY WERE NEARLY MEN. AND THE CHAINS HAD BEEN TIGHTENING UPON THEM, AND TIGHTENING WITH EVERY YEAR OF GROWTH. EACH YEAR THEY GREW, AND THE FOOD SPREAD, AND GREAT THINGS MULTIPLIED. EACH YEAR THE STRESS AND tension ROSE. The food had been at first for the great mass of mankind a distant marvel, and now it was coming home to every threshold and threatening, pressing against, and distorting the whole order of life. It blocked this, it overturned that, it changed natural products, and by changing natural products it stopped employments and threw men out of work by the hundred thousand. It swept over boundaries and turned the world of trade into a world of cataclysms no wonder mankind hated it and since it is easier to hate animate than inanimate things animals more than plants and one's fellow men more completely than any animals the fear and trouble engendered by giant nettles and six-foot grass blades awful insects and tiger-like vermin grew all into one great power of detestation that aimed itself with a simple directness at that scattered band of great human beings, the children of the food. That hatred had become the central force in political affairs. The old party lines had been traversed and defaced altogether under the insistence of these newer issues, and the conflict lay now with a party of the temporizers, who were for putting little political men to control and regulate the food and the party of reaction for whom Catterham spoke, speaking always with a more sinister ambiguity, crystallizing his intention first in one threatening phrase and then another, now that men must prune the bramble growths, now that they must find a cure for elephantiasis, and at last, upon the eve of the election, that they must grasp the nettle. One day the three sons of Cosser, who were now no longer boys but men, sat among the masses of their futile work, and talked together, after their fashion, of all these things. They had been working all day at one of a series of great and complicated trenches their father had bid them make, and now it was sunset, and they sat in the little garden space before the great house, and looked at the world and rested, until the little servants within should say their food was ready. You must figure these mighty forms, forty feet high the least of them was, reclining on a patch of turf that would have seemed a stubble of reeds to a common man. One sat up and chipped earth from his huge boots with an iron girder he grasped in his hand. The second rested on his elbow. The third whittled a pine tree into shape and made a smell of resin in the air. They were clothed not in cloth but in undergarments of woven rope and outer clothes of felted aluminum wire. They were shod with timber and iron and the links and buttons and belts of their clothing were all of plated steel. The great single-storied house they lived in, Egyptian in its massiveness, half built of monstrous blocks of chalk and half excavated from the living rock of the hill, had a front of full hundred feet in height, and beyond, the chimneys and wheels, the cranes and covers of their worksheds rose marvelously against the sky. Through a circular window in the house there was visible a spout from which some white-hot metal dripped and dripped in measured drops into a receptacle out of sight. The place was enclosed and rudely fortified by monstrous banks of earth backed with steel, both over the crests of the downs above and across the dip of the valley. It needed something of common size to mark the nature of the scale. The train that came rattling from Sevenoaks athwart their vision, and presently plunged into the tunnel out of their sight, "'looked by contrast with them like some small-sized automatic toy. "'They have made all the woods this side of Igtham out of bounds,' said one, "'and moved the board that was out by Knockholt two miles and more this way. "'It is the least they could do,' said the youngest after a pause. "'They are trying to take the wind out of Catterham's sails.' "'It's not enough for that, and it is almost too much for us,' said the third. They're cutting us off from Brother Redwood. Last time I went to him, the Red Notices had crept a mile in either way. The road to him along the Downs is no more than a narrow lane," the speaker thought. What has come to our Brother Redwood? Why, said the eldest brother. The speaker hacked a bough from his pine. He was like, as though he wasn't awake. He didn't seem to listen to what I had to say and he said something of love. The youngest tapped his girder on the edge of his iron sole and laughed. Brother Redwood, he said, has dreams. Neither spoke for a space. Then the eldest brother said, This cooping up and cooping up grows more than I can bear. At last, I believe they will draw a line round our boots and tell us to live on that. "'The middle brother swept aside a heap of pine boughs with one hand "'and shifted his attitude. "'What they do now is nothing to what they will do when Catterham has power.' "'If he gets power,' said the youngest brother, "'smiting the ground with his girder. "'As he will,' said the eldest, staring at his feet. "'The middle brother ceased his lopping, "'and his eye went to the great banks that sheltered them about. "'Then, brothers,' he said, "'Our youth will be over, and, as Father Redwood said to us long ago, "'we must quit ourselves like men.' "'Yes,' said the eldest brother, "'but what exactly does that mean? "'Just what does it mean when that day of trouble comes?' "'He, too, glanced at those rude, vast suggestions of entrenchment about them, "'looking not so much at them as through them "'and over the hills to the innumerable multitudes beyond.' Something of the same sort came into all their minds, a vision of little people coming out to war, in a flood, the little people, inexhaustible, incessant, malignant. "'They are little,' said the youngest brother, "'but they have numbers beyond counting, like the sands of the sea. "'They have arms, they have weapons even, that our brothers in Sunderland have made.' "'Besides, brothers, except for vermin, except for little accidents with evil things, "'what have we seen of killing?' "'I know,' said the eldest brother. "'For all that, we are what we are. "'When the day of trouble comes, we must do the thing we have to do.' "'He closed his knife with a snap, the blade was the length of a man, "'and used his new pine-staff to help himself rise. "'He stood up and turned towards the squat-gray immensity of the house.' The crimson of the sunset caught him as he rose, caught the mail and clasps about his neck and the woven metal of his arms, and to the eyes of his brother it seemed as though he was suddenly suffused with blood. As the young giant rose, a little black figure became visible to him, against that western incandescence on the top of the embankment that towered above the summit of the down. The black limbs waved in ungainly gestures. Something in the fling of the limbs suggested haste to the young giant's mind. He waved his pine mast in reply, filled the whole valley with his vast, Hello! threw a something's up to his brothers, and set off in twenty-foot strides to meet and help his father. Five. It chanced, too, that a young man who was not a giant was delivering his soul about these sons of Kossar just at that same time. He had come over the hills beyond seven oaks he and his friend and he it was did the talking in the hedge as they came along they had heard a pitiful squealing and had intervened to rescue three nestling tits from the attack of a couple of giant ants that adventure it was had set him talking reactionary he was saying as they came within sight of the cossar encampment who wouldn't be reactionary look at that square of ground that space of god's earth that was once sweet and fair torn desecrated disembowelled those sheds that great windwheel that monstrous wheeled machine those dykes look at those three monsters squatting there plotting some ugly devilment or other look look at all the land his friend glanced at his face you have been listening to catterham he said using my eyes Looking a little into the peace and order of the past we leave behind. This foul food is the last shape of the devil, still set as ever upon the ruin of our world. Think what the world must have been before our days, what it was still when our mothers bore us, and see it now. Think how these slopes once smiled under the golden harvest, how the hedges full of sweet little flowers parted the modest portion of this man from that, How the ruddy farmhouses dotted the land, and the voice of the church bells from yonder tower stilled the whole world each Sabbath into Sabbath prayer. And now, every year, still more and more of monstrous weeds, of monstrous vermin, and these giants growing all about us, straddling over us, blundering against all that is subtle and sacred in our world. Why, here, look! He pointed, and his friend's eyes followed the line of his white finger one of their footmarks see it has smashed itself three feet deep and more a pitfall for horse and rider a trap for the unwary there is a briar rose smashed to death there is grass uprooted and a teasel crushed aside a farmer's drain pipe snapped and the edge of the pathway broken down destruction so they are doing all over the world all over the order and decency the world of men has made trampling on all things reaction what else "'But reaction? What do you hope to do?' "'Stop it!' cried the young man from Oxford, "'before it is too late!' "'But it's not impossible!' cried the young man from Oxford "'with a jump in his voice. "'We want the firm hand. "'We want the subtle plan, the resolute mind. "'We have been mealy-mouthed and weak-handed. "'We have trifled and temporized, "'and the food has grown and grown. "'Yet even now... He stopped for a moment. This is the echo of Catterham, said his friend. Even now, even now there is hope, abundant hope. If only we make sure of what we want and what we mean to destroy. The mass of people are with us, much more with us than they were a few years ago. The law is with us, the constitution and order of society, the spirit of the established religions, the customs and habits of mankind are with us and against the food. Why should we temporize? Why should we lie? We hate it. We don't want it. Why, then, should we have it? Do you mean to just grizzle and obstruct passively and do nothing till the sands are out? He stopped short and turned about. Look at that grove of nettles there. In the midst of them are homes, deserted, where once clean families of simple men played out their honest lives. And there... He swung round to where the young cossars muttered to one another of their wrongs. Look at them, and I know their father, a brute, a sort of brute beast with an intolerant loud voice, a creature who has run amuck in our all-too-merciful world for the last thirty years and more. An engineer. To him, all that we hold dear and sacred is nothing, nothing. The splendid traditions of our race and land, the noble institutions, the venerable order, The broad, slow march from precedent to precedent that has made our English people great and this sunny island free, it is all an idle tale told and done with. Some claptrap about the future is worth all these sacred things. The sort of man who would run a tramway over his mother's grave if he thought that was the cheapest line the tramway could take. And you think to temporize, to make some scheme of compromise, That will enable you to live in your way while that, that machinery lives in its. I tell you, it is hopeless, hopeless, as well make treaties with a tiger. They want things monstrous. We want them sane and sweet. It is one thing or the other. But what can you do? Much. All. Stop the food. They are still scattered, these giants, still immature and disunited. Chain them. Gag them them! At any cost, stop them. It is their world or ours. Stop the food. Shut up these men who make it. Do anything to stop Cosser. You don't seem to remember. One generation, only one generation needs holding down. And then... Then we could level those mounds there. Fill up their footsteps. Take the ugly sirens from our church towers. Smash all our elephant guns and turn our faces again to the old order, the ripe old civilization for which the soul of man is fitted. It's a mighty effort. For a mighty end. And if we don't, don't you see the prospect before us clear as day? Everywhere the giants will increase and multiply. Everywhere they will make and scatter the food. The grass will grow gigantic in our fields, the weeds in our hedges, the vermin in the thickets, the rats in the drains, more and more and more. This is only a beginning. The insect world will rise on us. The plant world, the very fishes in the sea, will swamp and drown our ships. Tremendous growths will obscure and hide our houses, smother our churches smash and destroy all the order of our cities, and we shall become no more than a feeble vermin under the heels of the new race. Mankind will be swamped and drowned in things of its own begetting, and all for nothing, size, mere size, enlargement, and da capo. Already we go picking our way among the first beginnings of the coming time, and all we do is to say, how inconvenient, to grumble and do nothing. No. He raised his hand. Let them do the thing they have to do. So also will I. I am for reaction, unstinted and fearless reaction. Unless you mean to take this food also, what else is there to do in all the world? We have trifled in the middle ways too long. You! Trifling in the middle ways is your habit, your circle of existence, your space and time. So, not I. I am against the food. With all my strength and purpose against the food. He turned on his companion's grunt of dissent. Where are you? It's a complicated business. Oh, driftwood, said the young man from Oxford very bitterly, with a fling of all his limbs. The middle way is nothingness. It is one thing or the other. Eat or destroy, eat or destroy. What else is there to do? End of Book 3, Chapter 1